Welcome to the review of Democracy, the journal of the CEU Democracy Institute, where we discuss some of the most exciting new publications concerning the past, present, and future of democracies across the globe. I am Ferenc Lotso. I am an editor at the Review of Democracy, and it is a very special pleasure today for me to host Yasha Munk. Welcome to the show, Yasha. Thank you so much. I look forward to talking to you. Great to have you here at the Review of Democracy. Yasha Munk probably requires no introduction at all to our listeners. He is the author of five books by now and is widely regarded as a leading expert on the crisis of liberal democracy and the rise of populism. He acts as a professor of the practice of international affairs at Johns Hopkins. He's also a contributing editor at The Atlantic, a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and the founder of Persuasion, where he also hosts a podcast series of his own under the title The Good Fight. Now, more recently, he has also started to act as a Herausgeber or publisher of the highly reputed German weekly Die Zeit. Now, beyond all that, Yasha Munk has just completed a new book, which is called The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time, which I have read with great pleasure and which I greatly look forward to discussing with him here on the show today. Uh, now, the starting point of this new book, Yasha, is that a new way of thinking about identity has gained tremendous influence in recent years. And you call this uh, new way of thinking the identity synthesis. So what is this synthesis and how has it come about in intellectual historical terms? Yeah, so, you know, when you look at the way we talk about the world and big parts of the humanities and social sciences. Um, but also when you look at public discourse in politics, in the media, on Twitter, I think it's quite clear that uh, there's a new set of ideas, a new kind of ideology that has arisen over the course of the last decade. And that in particular, it really has transformed the basic categories of analysis, the basic language of big parts of what we would call the progressive left the kind of ideals and the kind of uh, beliefs that define what it is to be left-wing are significantly changed, at least in, in large portions of the left, from what you would have assumed 30 or 40 years ago. Um, but strangely, we don't have a lot of serious uh, academic or a lot of serious work at all on what the nature of this ideology is and where it comes from. There's, uh, you know, very charged political debates about it. There's very polemical debates about it on social media. There's attacks on it that are often quite unfair. There's uh, sometimes a lot of pressure to get on board with these ideas without reflecting on them very much. Um, and what I've tried to do in this book is to actually examine them in a serious and rigorous way. Um, so uh, I start by asking sort of, straightforward question of an intellectual historian. I'm not really an intellectual historian, but it's kind of my academic training. I did my undergrad in history in, in Cambridge at the time when Quentin Skinner and the Cambridge School were very dominant there, and that's part of what I did for my PhD. Uh, and so I start by asking a very straightforward intellectual history question, you know, where do these ideas come from? Now, sometimes uh, when these ideas are attacked from the right, uh, they're described as a form of cultural Marxism, right, where the idea is that you take, you know, some kind of you know, more or less orthodox set of Marxist beliefs in 1925 and 1950, and you take out class and you put in identity categories and you get this kind of ideology. And, and that, it turns out, as a matter of straightforward intellectual history, is it, just wrong. Um, in fact, I argue these ideas originate in a certain kind of way with postmodernist Ford um, and Michel Foucault and others, um, but then through a series of turns through post colonialism and critical race theory end up in a place that, that also in some ways is quite interestingly distinct from, from where Foucault started. So, uh, you know, in my mind, you know, why is it called the synthesis? Well, it, it, it is because it synthesizes different ideas, because it, it, it sort of is this interesting way of summarizing different kinds of intellectual moves that people made of 50 or 60 year time span, right? So, so Foucault, one of the reasons why it's a mistake to think of it as a form of cultural Marxism is that Foucault, of course, is deeply skeptical of what he calls grand narratives. And that includes the grand narrative of liberalism, liberal democracy. It includes Foucault's deep skepticism 
towards the claims to historical progress and the claims to truth of democracies of his day. It's one of the reasons why this tradition from the beginning really sets itself up and understands itself as being in direct conflict with any form of philosophical liberalism. But Foucault also, of course, rejects the grand narrative of Marxism, um, you know, to the greatest pleasure of uh, you know, dominant intellectuals in the Paris of his day, like Jean-Paul Sartre. And so the starting point of these ideas really is the emphasis on uh, political power as inhering in the kind of discourses that structure society, the kind of discourses that we have to contribute to by having you know, this conversation on a, on a podcast. Power is not just top down. We exercise it over each other in the way we think about and, and frame things. And secondly, interestingly, a kind of skepticism about identity categories. Uh, for Foucault in our terms today might be considered you know, gay or homosexual. Um, he did not like those terms, thinking of them as modern inventions that were deeply constraining of uh, our understanding of a great variety of sexual experiences and sexual self-identifications. That proved to be deeply influential on uh, post-colonial thinkers like Edward Said and Gayatri Spivak, who in particular in the critique of discourse saw the kernel for uh, an ability to critique Western power over colonized countries. But they also grew uh, uncomfortable with what they saw as the quietest implications of Foucault's thought. The idea in Foucault that uh, we can never really make progress and all we can do is to disrupt discourses for a moment or two and then they'll sort of reconstitute and the new discourse will be just as oppressive as the old. And so you know, Edward Said really wants to use the critique of discourse in a much more political direction, saying, look, if the West has used its discourse of Orientalism, its sort of conceptions about what the East uh, supposedly has in common and why it's in some ways inferior, then the point is not just to understand it, it is to uh, redescribe the world in such a way that these countries can fight back. And that at the end of it, they are more powerful than they were, but they're more able to resist that kind of oppression. And um, that really uh, sort of forms the kernel for one of the important contemporary themes in the identity synthesis, which is this politicized form of discourse analysis. Today, what we think about politics being is in part, you know, if you're a feminist, you're going to celebrate or perhaps to critique the Barbie movie, right? Like arguing over the kind of gender norms that are communicated in our higher culture is in fact a political act, is a way of bringing about political changes. Um, that idea really comes from Said's sort of politicized reading of Foucault's discourse analysis. And then the second important uh, move, Gayatri Spivak, who is herself a translator of important uh, post-structuralist authors, uh, deeply steeped in the postmodernist and then post-structuralist tradition, grapples with a rejection of identity groups. Foucault and Deleuze in one exchange say, uh, you know, it's time for intellectuals to stop speaking for the masses. You know, the proletarian can speak for himself. And Spivak, in reflecting on this, says, well, that, that might be true of a worker in Paris who has, uh, you know, certain forms of advantage, who probably had, uh, for example, a relatively high quality education. Uh, it may not be true of the poorest people in the, the country where she's from. It may not be true of the poorest people in Kolkata, where she was born and raised who didn't have access to that kind of education, who have less social standing. And so she says what she calls the subaltern cannot speak for themselves. Somebody has to speak for them. But to do that, we have to rescue identity categories. And so she coins this very influential term of strategic essentialism. And what she means by that is that essentialist accounts of identity are wrong, as people like Foucault and Derrida pointed out. She agrees with them on that. But for political, for practical purposes, we sometimes strategically have to act as though they had been true. And again, this becomes a theme of contemporary social justice activism in which you often hear activists saying, you know, race is a social construct, but then we go on to, to talk and to act as though race were in fact very, very real. Uh, even going to the point in uh, many educational settings of trying as hard as they can to encourage students in elite private uh, schools in the United States today to identify by the race, by the racial origin, uh, the express goal of, of places like Dalton 
uh, school or of uh, Bank Street School, these very uh, elite progressive schools in New York City, is to get their students to embrace their racial identity. And sometimes they come into classrooms, take the six or seven or eight-year-old kids, and separate them out. Say, if you're white, you go over there. If you're Latino, you go over there. If you're black, or uh, you go over there. If you're Asian American, you go over there. And we're going to have these affinity groups in which we try to get you to identify with your uh, racial group. That is a sort of strange modern outpouring of Spivak's strategic essentialism. She herself may have been skeptical about that, but that is sort of what became of those ideas. And then in a third step, uh, you have a rise of critical race theory. Again, there's a link to postmodernism because critical race theorists start off in uh, corners of American law schools that are um, influenced by what's called critical legal studies, which is basically postmodernism applied to the law, but they thought that their colleagues in critical legal studies did not take race seriously enough. And so they came up not with critical legal studies, but with critical race theory. It's a kind of adaptation of that. Uh, and, and, and that has a couple of main themes. The first, and Derek Bell, one of the founders of a tradition, is a real attack on the civil rights movement. I mean, Bell uh, decries what he calls the defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement. He himself had been a lawyer helping to desegregate schools uh, and other institutions throughout the American South, the NAACP, but he came to think that that was actually a mistake, that he wasn't truly acting in the interest of his clients, who often would have preferred segregated schools that had better resources and better teachers uh, rather than integrated schools. So he actually comes to reject in many ways Brown versus Board of Education, thinking that uh, separate but truly equal schools might have been better. And he insisted on the permanence of racism in America, on the idea that America in 1975 or in 2000 was no less racist than it had been in 1950 or 1850. Uh, these two become real themes of how we think about these issues today, the rejection of any form of universal value neutral rule in favor of a society in which how you're treated should more and more come to depend on the kind of group of which we're a part. And this sort of deep skepticism, deep pessimism about our ability to make any progress or our ability to have made progress in the past. And finally, I know it's a long answer, uh, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw coins the term of intersectionality, which starts off as a kind of interaction effect where she points out that Black women might be discriminated in ways that go deeper and further than just the sum of discrimination experienced by white women on the one side or black men on the other side. And the American law at the time was not able to recognize that in adequate ways. That's a very uh, useful and uh, uncontroversial insight. But, but the idea of intersectionality even takes on a life of its own. Uh, and in the contemporary reading of it, it often merges with standpoint epistemology to suggest that, you know, if I stand at one intersection of identities and you stand at a different intersection of identities, we're really not going to be able to, to understand each other. These five themes really make up a lot of what this ideology is uh, today. Um, the rejection of uh, truth, uh, the embrace of a politicized form of discourse analysis, uh, the advancement of a uh, form of strategic essentialism that doubles down on identity uh, forms and groups, the rejection of universal values and the idea of the permanence of all kinds of forms of discrimination, including you know, sexism and homophobia. Uh, and finally, this deep skepticism about our ability to understand each other across identity lines. Um, so that gets us up to about 2010. But, but Crenshaw, in a really interesting article celebrating the 30th anniversary of critical race theory, then says, well, we've had tremendous influence in the academy and you know, we can pat ourselves on the back. We've you know, really had an impact. But of course, society as a whole completely ignores us. And that's not going to change. Uh, and the strange puzzle is that over the next 10 years, but does change. Yes, indeed, it changes tremendously. And I think you show very nicely how these intellectual trends link up. There's also quite a lot of tension between them, right? Uh, not to mention uh, that constructivism points in one direction, strategic essentialism points in a very different direction in intellectual terms. But for activists, it's a kind of package, right? This is synthesis, which becomes very powerful. So how does that happen since, since 2010? Let's perhaps talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, and, and, and one thing I just want to briefly say is that, you know, I really fundamentally disagree with many of the thinkers that, that I've just mentioned. Um, I do think that they've always understood themselves uh, uh, straightforwardly as, as opponents and enemies of liberalism, and I do consider myself a liberal. But they're smart and sophisticated thinkers, and I enjoyed reading them, and I enjoyed grappling with them. 
Uh, and many of them were quite skeptical of what became of these ideas. So Spivak, for example, uh, you know, an allusion to the tea wallers who sell tea in the streets of India, started to decry the humorlessness of uh, identity wallers at American universities. Um, you know, Said said that the point is not to revel in victimhood, it's to overcome victimhood, to create a world with as fewer victims. So they all are skeptical of these ideas, and Foucault, I think, would have hated what has become of many of these ideas. So I just want to give these, these thinkers their due and their subtlety. What happens over the course of the 2010s is that a lot less subtle thinkers uh, take over and really uh, sloganeer these ideas in ways that I think are much more damaging. So the first step here, I think, is the rise of social media that allow forms of identity to have sort of truly protean qualities. Uh, and, and, and the most important actor here, I think, is not Twitter or Facebook or, or TikTok or, or Instagram. It was Tumblr, which is now much forgotten. Uh, what Tumblr allowed people to do in the late 2000s and early 2010s, uh, mostly teenage users in the United States and, and, and somewhat beyond, was to self-tag themselves. They could create some kind of identity tag and then find others who joined that. And that really overcame basic uh, site constraint that you've always had in the formation of identity. Because when you think about starting to form your social identity as a teenager in some kind of high school, uh, there's just a limit of numbers. You need other people to affirm your identity. You need to have a few confreres who share in the identity for it to be a viable social identity. Uh, otherwise, you're just a loner. And if the number of people you can reach is limited, that also limits the kind of range of identity groups you can embrace. So you didn't, I assume, go to an American high school. I didn't go to an American high school, but, you know, this takes us back to the world of 1990s high school movies where there's sort of, you know, the, the jock and the nerd and the theater kid or whatever. But there's sort of a limit to how many of these groups there can be. On Tumblr, there's no limit because you can reach millions of people. And even if 0.001% of a population sort of embraces some kind of identity label, you can have a group of 50 people who are memeing your way into a form of self-identification. So you've got the rise of all of these new forms of identity on Tumblr. New sexual identities like demisexual, uh, new gender identities, um, new, new racial and ethnic identities to some extent as well. And then you have to keep all of these different tribes together, right? When you have all these people who define themselves by these new identities, you have to have some kind of overarching identity or ideology that actually helps to keep the peace and broker the peace. And this becomes a sort of popularized form of the identity synthesis, where the biggest imperative is not to offend, to affirm everybody in, in the identity, to defer to each other. Um, because we can't really understand each other. So if you make a claim that somehow in your wheelhouse, then I just have to defer to, to what you're saying. That's the kind of culture that starts to arise in Tumblr. And then it takes the written form through things like a Ford Catalog, which allowed everybody to publish sort of whatever they wanted. And one corner of it became a sort of first written form of a popularized version of the identity synthesis. And then you get to publications uh, like one that I stumbled across in, in 2015, uh, and really started to realize that some of the ideas I'd encountered in seminar rooms had now sort of been memefied in this really strange way called everydayfeminism.com. So by that time, you would get, uh, you know, listicle articles in a slightly BuzzFeed form, like, you know, people of color can't cure your racism, but here are five things you can do instead. Or six ways to respond to sexist microaggressions in everyday conversations. Or one of my favorites, so you're a breastman, here are three reasons that could be sexist, right? So you can start to see how these things go viral and have a kind of appeal. And then there's another transformation that social media brings, which is really influential, really important here. And that's that you know, first you would get a newspaper in print. And so, you know, you, you'd have to find most of the things from print newspaper to be appealing. Then it moves to the website. So by the time that the American publication Vox is founded in 2013, it's pretty online. But most readers, most of the articles that get read are still from people going to Vox.com and looking at the website. And so the average article still has to appeal to most people visiting the website. If you go to the website, nine out of ten articles are of no interest to you, not going to come back. Well, around 2015, 2016, that changes. And now most article reads come from social media, from Facebook and Twitter in particular. And on social media, of course, people are connected through identity networks a lot of the time. And so suddenly these kinds of articles or articles about the experience of Asian Americans or articles about the vegan community start to travel much, much more strongly. And they really give this kind of ideology a boost. And at the same time, there's an economic crisis. 
The New York Times and the Washington Post are desperately looking for clicks because their ad revenue is cratering and they hire a lot of the people who are most successful at bringing these kind of ideas into the public sphere. And so over the course of a decade, even these mainstream publications start to embrace these kinds of ideas in, in really quite a striking way. So that's one of the mechanisms. And the other mechanism that we can talk about, if you like, is, you know, I sort of jokingly call it the short march through the institutions. So, uh, you know, inspired by something like Rudi Dutschke, who talked about the long march through the institutions in the, in the 1970s um, in, in, in the German context. And if you're a good student, activists in the 60s, you know, you should go into these mainstream institutions and try to subvert and, and influence them with your ideas. Something like that starts to happen, not in a kind of uh, deliberate or conspiracy theoretical way, but, you know, by 2010, a lot of students from elite universities who go into the most significant tech companies and professional firms and nonprofits and uh, congressional offices are just deeply steeped in the ideas of the identity synthesis in college courses and even more so in trainings from administrators on campus. And they fan out into the workplace and just as part of how they want to reshape those workplaces, out of how they want to live, not as some kind of part of a grand plan, they start to have a tremendous influence on how these uh, institutions operate. No, fascinating. You know, one of the reasons why this book speaks so much to me is because we happen to have been born in the same year, <laughs> I, I can perhaps admit. And I think these phenomena you described were really not there when we were growing up as we became adults. Mm. And the world has changed in, in ways we really didn't expect. And I think you're really trying to make sense of this in a very serious way. And I think that's also, again, part of the reason why this, why this book speaks so much to me personally. But at the same time, you know, as we see all these changes in political culture, in culture more generally, I think some people might say this is quite specific to the United States, right? This identity synthesis has become a really powerful trend over there. And it's perhaps less the case elsewhere, right? When we look at the transformation of the political left and all the focus on questions of culture and identity, would you say this is really something that's that's exceptional in the US? Or do you see this as a trend across the globe? So I think it is a trend across the globe. Uh, it is stronger in, I would say, the Anglo-Saxon world than it is outside the Anglo-Saxon world for now. So it is as strong in Canada and Australia as it is in the United States. It is significant, perhaps a little bit less strong in Great Britain than it is in America. And then I think, uh, you know, you are seeing the influence of these ideas rise very rapidly in Western Europe. They are at a lower degree of intensity. They certainly haven't won a cultural hegemony in the same way in which they have in at least progressive or facially neutral, but in practice left-leaning spaces like universities in the United States. But I can certainly see the influence of them rising uh, in the academic sphere in, in countries like, like Germany or, or, or the Netherlands or Denmark uh, and so on. Um, and increasingly in media as well. You know, when I look at German Twitter, five years ago, these ideas just did not exist and people did not argue in these categories. And now a lot of the uh, controversies on German Twitter about things like cultural appropriation, which I deal with in another part of the book, uh, you know, the idea that free speech is somehow a right-wing value rather than one that has traditionally been embraced and championed by the left has come to be widely accepted in Europe as well, you know, on many of those issues, you're starting to see the same kind of development. So look, there's two kind of models of thinking about this. One is that, uh, you know, European culture is American culture plus five years or plus 10 years. That for the, you know, since 1945, American culture has been the lead indicator and European culture in one way or another followed suit. You know, uh, uh, the French rejected the hamburger and thought that was a terrible uh, American cultural imposition, but today when you go to France, people eat a lot of hamburgers. So uh, we're not at the same stage yet in Europe, but wait three or four years and suddenly it'll be just the same. Um, there's another model, um, which is defended by some people who thought about this, like Ian Baruma, that there's really something quite essentially religious about this movement. Now, some people make this claim literally, like John McWhirter, a really interesting thinker, who says that this is literally a new religion. I disagree with that for various reasons. But certainly, I think it's plausible to think that this fills a religion-shaped hole in America. 
And the, the, the shape of that pole is probably Protestant or even evangelical or Puritan. And the nature of a whole depends on relatively recent secularization. And so you might think if you have a religious model that this will have greater appeal in Protestant nations than in Catholic nations. And that seems to be true for now, at least. I think, you know, in Italy or Spain, um, quote, unquote, wokeness has much as purchase than in, uh, you know, Sweden or benevolence so far. And you might think that perhaps in Europe, which secularized earlier and has perhaps secularized more deeply, the sort of need for a quasi-religious ideology is less strong than it is on the American left, which actually in its moral instincts is very Puritan, even if the substance of its beliefs uh, has diverged very strongly from the, the Puritan uh, ancestors. I kind of spit the difference on this. I think there's something to this religious account that's interesting and provocative. I don't fully buy it. There's also something to the account that American culture remains a lead indicator of where European culture goes. Uh, so again, I, I, I wouldn't want to put that in too simplistic a way. Uh, and so I think part of it is that Europe now has a choice. You know, do we want to embrace these ideas uncritically or not? And I'm really struck uh, by the way in which these ideas have just been, uh, you know, swallowed whole cloth in huge parts of the American elite and the American mainstream. But it also had something to do with the timing of Donald Trump. I think when Trump was elected in 2016, it just became impossible to criticize any ideas of the left without being painted as a sort of secret stooge of Trump or somebody who secretly sympathizes with Trump. So I think in Europe, we have a little bit more breathing room to actually engage with these ideas, reflect on them, understand them. We have, you know, we have a little bit more time. And I think when you do that, you recognize that many of the advocates have the best of intentions, but that this is not just a matter of people going a little bit too far in the right direction or being a little bit too zealous in the pursuit of justice, which, you know, it's not a bad thing to be zealous in the pursuit of justice. It really is that these ideas from the foundation were fundamentally opposed to some of the values that I most uh, admire. In the United States, one of the political traditions I most like is that of Black liberals, from Frederick Douglass to Martin Luther King to Barack Obama. Um, the tradition I'm talking about explicitly rejects this political tradition, thinks of it as, you know, hopelessly wrongheaded and naive. Crenshaw says that, you know, Barack Obama's politics was at, fundamentally at odds of key tenets of critical race theory. And so, you know, I think we should realize that this is trying to build a society that is not, in fact, going to make the world a better place, despite its good intentions. That, by the way, is why I call the book The Identity Trap. Um, the thing about a trap is that it has a real lure. You can see why people are attracted to it. It has something that seems appealing. In this case, the most radical action against these forms of injustice that are very real, right? Um, it can lure smart and, and well-intentioned people, but it is, in fact, a trap. It does make life worse for people. And I think that um, Europe would make a mistake to imbibe these ideas as uncritically uh, as Americans have. And, you know, the jury's out as to whether we will. Right, right. Again, it's indeed true that you offer a critique uh, in this book. We have already talked about the intellectual historical emergence uh, and also the breakthrough to the mainstream. But you also argue that it's very dangerous and in fact counterproductive uh, when these ideas start to be applied, when they start to also shape uh, public policy. So I wanted to ask you a bit more about that. You know, what is the problem with inscribing a group identity at the heart of public policy? Uh, what's your issue with goals such as equity or the uh, not particularly beautiful <laughs> phrase of disparitarianism? Yeah, let me give you a couple of examples that that show what can go wrong in, in practice, because uh, these are not just abstract concerns. One is about a woman called Carla Posey, a Black woman in the suburbs of Atlanta who has two kids who are of primary school age. And because she does some work with the school, she's an educator herself, she is usually allowed to request a particular teacher for, for, for her kids. And the principal confirmed to her that she would be allowed to request a teacher, and she does. And then the principal kept, kept demurring and saying, well, you know, perhaps you could choose a different teacher. And you know, she sort of stonewalled. Um, and eventually, Calipose said, look, what's up? You said I could choose a teacher for my kid, and you keep sort of putting me off. What's going on here? And the principal said, well, you know, the class you requested, that's not the black class. And that sounds like a straightforward story of, you know, the kind of discrimination that 
You might fear in the American South until you learn that the principal is a black woman who is deeply politically progressive. Uh, so it's a slightly different story. And that is the story of the growing influence of progressive separatism in American educational institutions. The principal of a school um, has bought into the ideas of people like Beverly Tatum, very influential educators, um, the president of a college that educates a lot of teachers, actually, um, who say that it is imperative for people to have a lot of same race friends, even if a kid is very well integrated, has lots of friends, but they're not of the same racial group, that is going to be disastrous to their later development. And so therefore schools have to make sure to create those affinity groups and those groups in which black kids, for example, are in their own group, are separate from other students. And so the principal was imposing here on the teachers, on the, on the parents' choice that, no, I'm not going to allow your kid to be in a class where there's not a sufficient number of same race children. You know, Carla Posey, who's really, I had a really moving conversation with her, told me, look, you know, I watched the inauguration of Kamala Harris with my children. And, you know, they said they want to be, you know, president of the United States. And whatever they end up doing, you know, will be president or something else, they're going to have opportunities. They're going to be out there in the world. And they're going to be able to get along with people of any race. And I don't think it's my school's job to tell me that they need to predominantly have Black friends, right? So that, I think, is, is, is a real transformation of a public school in the United States and how it does things. It's not the only one. These kind of practices are really spreading in America. Um, let me give you a story about disparitarianism, which really shocked me. I mean, it's it's one of the more shocking documents of public policy that I've come across uh, in recent times. And this is a, a presentation to and a meeting of the key committee advising the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, on how to roll out vaccines in the United States at a time when uh, these wonderful life-saving forms of medical treatment uh, were still very sparse. There just weren't enough of them to go around. Now, what nearly every European country did, nearly every country around the world did, was you might give it first to doctors and nurses because you need them in the hospital, right? But after that, uh, you go by age, basically. So because there's an extremely strong age element to uh, who's vulnerable to COVID, you start with the over 80-year-olds, and then you go to the over 75-year-olds, and you sort of uh, you know expand the eligibility. And, and, and one of the advantages of that, by the way, is that it's super easy to roll out, right? Because it's easy to communicate to the public, you're eligible after a certain age cutoff, and it's easy to check people's IDs, and so you can, you know, minimize free riding, and so it also has practical benefits. Well, this committee unanimously agreed with a presentation, which said that that is unacceptable in the United States because, unfortunately, older Americans are disproportionately white. Just because of the nature of immigration demographic change in America, you know, a higher share of 80-year-olds is white than 30-year-olds. And that means that on equity grounds, we cannot go with older people first, even for the CDC's own model, which is referenced in the presentation, acknowledges that this will lead to thousands more deaths across the United States. And so what the committee suggested and the CDC accepted and many states then implemented in various forms was to prioritize as well essential workers. Now, essential workers are a really, really broad, amorphous category. It's hard to communicate to people whether they're an essential worker or not. There's a lot of political wrangling about who gets included in the category of essential worker. I was an essential worker in the state of Maryland because I am Professor at Johns Hopkins, even though we were not allowed to teach in-person classes, right? So the reason I was an essential worker is that in theory, I was going to be in the classroom, but A, I was not at particular risk of COVID anyway, because I'm a healthy guy who's not yet quite old. And B, I was sitting at home working array at my standing desk, but I was eligible for this vaccine. Uh, as a quote-unquote essential worker. So what actually happened is that way too many people become eligible for the number of vaccines that are actually available. And who ends up being able to get them? Enterprising people who have, you know, an ability to spend hours clicking on websites or, you know, driving to remote parts of their state in order to go to some pharmacy where they were able to get a slot, can afford to take half a day to, to go out of the way to get these vaccines and so on and so forth. So actually, it ended up being very, very uh, socially unfair. And it likely increased the number of people of color in the United States who died. Because if two Black 25-year-old Uber drivers get a vaccine, rather than one Black 80-year-old retirees, the number of Black deaths is likely to increase 
statistically rather than to decrease because of how strong the age effect is. Um, so this is one very concrete example of a life and death uh, question in which the application of these ideas of equity, explicitly this was justified on grounds of equity, lead to more overall deaths, probably more deaths among the group that it's likely, that it's supposed to serve, leads to a really inefficient distribution system that creates all kinds of problems and injustices. And by the way, delivers a giant electoral present to the populist right. Um, you know, uh, a lot of my previous work has been on the rise of populism. And one of the things I say in this book is that while these ideologies seem diametrically opposed, one is the yin to the other's yang. It is these kinds of policies that are making it easier for somebody like Donald Trump to have a shot of getting back into the White House for 2024 because of the way in which, you know, it makes a lot of people think that, you know, much of the left has left the common sense and the and the, and the cultural mainstream. This is sort of, uh, you know, uh, one very important story of a public policy implemented in this, but there's broader philosophical critiques of uh, equity that you know, many black left-leaning professors, in this case, black Marxist professors like Adolf Reed Jr. have pointed out that the idea of race disparit disparitarianism, as he sort of reformulates equity, uh, because that's really what it's about, right? It's a concern about uh, disparities in the relative position of members of different ethnic groups, uh, you know, broadly speaking, says that a society could be just if 13 or 14 percent of American billionaires are black and, uh, you know, 13 or 14 percent of American CEOs uh, are black, because that's roughly the African-American share and the overall population, right? Uh, so in other words, you can achieve equity without achieving, for example, greater economic equality because you're just looking at the disparity between these different racial groups, not at the disparity, for example, between the, between the rich and the poor. But it, it seems to me that your book is in this sense about one of the most vexing moral questions is, you know, why the yearning for justice can foster injustice, right? Uh, hmm. In fact, you, you do state that there's a tremendous appeal and there's an intellectual trap out of which uh, forms of injustice can, can really emerge that, that make the problem only worse. And in connection with that, you explicitly favor a liberal approach. You're in favor of collective self-determination, of individual freedom, and also of governmental neutrality, right? You, you aim to demonstrate in the book that such a more liberal, more universalistic approach can in fact better serve uh, to articulate injustices and to improve uh, the world. So could we talk a bit about what are some of the key advantages of taking such a liberal approach and how can such a liberal approach actually generate more ambitious forms of political solidarity, right? Because you insist that in fact, this would be a more ambitious program. Yeah, so, you know, we've talked about the different themes of the identity synthesis, another way of uh, approaching the same question is to do a you know rational reconstruction of the tradition of trying to boil it down to some of its core claims. Um, and in my mind, the core claims of the identity synthesis are first of all that you know the the primary, the principal prism for understanding the world is to see it through identity categories like race, gender, and sexual orientation. That really is how to understand everything from uh, you know big questions of politics to interpersonal relations. Some of the less sophisticated thinkers that really popularize these ideas, like, like Robin D'Angelo and Ibram X. Kendi, are, are very clear on this. D'Angelo says that every time a white person interrupts a black person, they're bringing the entire apparatus of white supremacy to bear on them. Now, part of what it is to be friends with each other, part of what it is to record a podcast with each other, part of what it is to be lovers, is that sometimes you interrupt each other. So I, this makes me think that D'Angelo does not have any black friends. Um, she herself is a white woman, as it, as it happens. Uh, the second claim is that you know universal values and neutral rules uh, haven't just been imperfectly applied in history, but that they're really an attempt to pull the wool over people's eyes that they really serve to perpetuate forms of racial and sexual and other domination in society. And so thirdly, therefore, since we haven't made any progress supposedly, and since these universal values are, are, are just uh, you know, uh, an instrument of power of uh, those who are in charge, 
we shouldn't try to live up to them. We need to reject them. We need to, lead, to create a society in which how people are treated by the state and how we treat each other is more explicitly uh, dependent on the identity groups of which we are part. Now, all of these are attacks on liberalism in one way or another. And I think that liberals have good thoughtful responses to these points, which uh, take very seriously the history of, of, of injustice and discrimination uh, that certainly characterizes every democracy I know of, uh, and the persistence of many of those problems today, but does that without throwing the liberal baby out of the bathwater. So, so my responses to these three claims are, first of all, that you know there are many prisons for understanding reality, and we should look at uh, historical situations, personal situations, uh, through a mix of those, which includes, of course, being aware of the importance of race, gender, sexual orientation, other identity categories, but also of social class, also of religion, also of ideology, also of nationality, also of how people act as individuals, what their aspirations and ideals are. Uh, we should not be uh, monocausal. Uh, and rather than coming with a pre-existing prism and imposing it on situations, we need to let each particular empirical question, each particular situation guide us towards which of those categories are most important in that context. Otherwise, we end up with a kind of absurdities that D'Angelo concludes. The second point is that, yes, of course, as liberals have recognized well before the rise of these theories, um, universal values and neutral rules are often breached, uh, honored as much in the breach as the observant. Um, uh, of course, the uh, beautiful ideals of the American Constitution uh, were made a mockery of by American reality uh, for a very long time. Uh, but in fact, we have been able to make real progress towards more just societies. It is simply wrong, and I think offensive, as Derek Bell suggests, that America today or uh, France today is no more just than it was 200 years ago. Not offensive to us living today, but offensive to the people who suffered much more extreme forms of discrimination uh, and injustice. And this is not a coincidence, as the great figures of Black liberal thought, for example, have recognized the ability to invoke those universal values was crucial in being able to make that progress. That is why Frederick Douglass called freedom of speech the dread of tyrants. That is why uh, Martin Luther King uh, Jr. pointed out that the, the, the check that the Bank of Justice had written to African-Americans uh, was fraudulent, but went on to insist that it be cashed rather than ripping it up. And so finally, what we should do is not to give up on those universal values and neutral rules. It is to double down our determination to live up to them more fully, because that's how we've actually been able to make progress in the past. So these are my sort of responses, but 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 in a broader sense, I think it's important to step back and recognize that for all of the flaws and for all of the self-criticism we have, and rightly have, and should have as philosophical liberals, the basic values of liberalism, of political equality and individual freedom and collective self-determination, uh, have in fact created societies that are much more just when we used to be, and that are thriving in different ways. One of the things I found striking when I sort of looked at some of the numbers is that, you know, when you exclude sort of, you know, very small countries, which are mostly sort of petrodictatorships, dictatorships, uh, you know, the countries in the world with the highest human development index, the countries in the world with the highest GDP per capita, the countries in the world that most people say we want to immigrate to, um, you know, on all kinds of objective criteria that most people would desire for their country, nearly all of them are liberal democracies. And so the people also on the post-liberal right who are going around you know, nitpicking everything that is like about reality and say, that's because of liberalism, have a story backward. In fact, liberalism is uh, imperfect for our societies remain and urgent for it is to fight these injustices. Liberalism is what allowed us to make progress and doubling down on those basic principles is going to be what allows us to continue to make progress in the future. Yes, and I think this very basic point is often forgotten these days in many of the discussions, this very basic idea that, in fact, liberalism has performed much better uh, than, than is often admitted, is, is, is in fact neglected. But one of the issues which seems to have generated a lot of discussions and debates is free speech and its potential limits, right? I think ever since the identity synthesis has gone so mainstream, uh, this has come up uh, again and again. 
And you seem to be very much in favor of fostering a genuine culture of free speech. So I wanted to ask you a bit about what you mean by that expression, first of all, the genuine culture of free speech. And how do you see ways of generating such a culture in the future, not least in connection with social media, where I think we would agree a lot has gone wrong in recent years? Yeah. So, you know, from from John Steele Mill writing about this on down, you know, those who truly cared about free speech always cared uh, about something more than rules and laws. There's plenty of rules and laws to be concerned about these days, especially in Europe. But in order to be free, to actually uh, be true to yourself and to feel confident in expressing your opinions, it's not enough that uh, you know you're not going to be dragged into jail for saying uh, what you want, as you might be these days in, in, in Turkey and Venezuela and other countries around the world. Um, but you need to know that you're not going to lose your job, you're not going to lose your bank account, uh, that people are not going to hound you out of your social and professional circles because they take out of context what you say or exaggerate it and uh, you know, enforce a very, very narrow orthodoxy. You know, only if we have that, do we have a genuine culture of free speech in which people are willing to actually express their full selves. And we don't have that today. I mean, I'm really struck by the fact that when I have lunch with somebody today in the United States, but increasingly in Europe as well, uh, you know, people who often have a lot of public standing, who are journalists or academics, they will say as a matter of course, after expressing some very anodyne opinion, uh, of course, I would never say this publicly. This is not views they're ashamed of. It's not views they believe to be wrong, but they are views that they don't want to express publicly. And I think that is, you know, without exaggeration, without overstatement, without saying that this is, you know, tyranny or something like that, it's 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 concerning. It's not the kind of society and culture that we should want to live in, especially academics who, after all, have forgotten all kinds of other, you know, opportunity costs and life uh, chances and things we could have done, uh, you know, because we supposedly want to think seriously and openly about the world. And if academics say this to each other, I think we should all look in the mirror and ask ourselves, is this what we actually sign up for? Um, should we feel comfortable with that? And so I think it is important to sustain this broader culture of free speech, not just the narrow laws of uh, free speech. Now, I make a couple of arguments in, 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 in this chapter on free speech that I think are interesting. One is that Mill, whom I love, and most defenders of free speech tend to focus on the good things that flow from having free speech. Um, so Mill talks beautifully in chapter two of On Liberty about the maintenance of truth, that even if it doesn't win out in one generation, the ability to express it allows those ideas to be rediscovered at later moments. He talks beautifully about it being important to have disagreement, even about things that are true, because it allows us to hold things as living truths rather than as their dogmas. But I think that the more powerful set of arguments for free speech is not about the good things we get from having free speech. It's about the terrible things that happen when we don't have free speech. And the most fundamental of them is that the people who make decisions about what can be said and what can't be said are by definition powerful. It is by definition going to be people who are relatively privileged and powerful who decide what the government finds to be illegal or not, who decide what you can post on uh, Twitter or uh, threads or not, who decide uh, what kind of expression of speech should get a student expelled from college uh, or not. And this is a point that the left has always recognized, right? That, of course, this is why, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Frederick Douglass called free speech the dread of tyrants, because it is the one thing that the tyrant cannot control. And so this idea that in some kind of systematic way, restrictions on free speech are going to be in favor of the pro-democratic forces, of the progressive forces, of the anti-racist forces, I think is just deeply and thoroughly naive. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, any publication associated with a Central European University and its experiences in Hungary uh, should be uh, particularly aware of that. And so, you know, how do you build a culture of free speech? Of course, there is free associations in, uh, in, in, in a liberal society. Um, nobody can you know, force you to invite somebody to dinner. And if you used to be friends with somebody and you find something they say so intolerable that you cease being friends with them, that is your good right. Um, but there are certain policies we can, we can follow. The first is that all of these vague uh, laws in Europe now about punishing people for speech that um, might be offensive 
that might be personally insulting, uh, speech that might be read as discriminatory, and which have actual coercive consequences where people actually go to jail for them, I think are wrong. I, I don't think the American system is superior in many respects to the European system. But I do think that something like the First Amendment uh, creates a very important space uh, of protection against the worst forms of government tyranny and overreach. And that will allow some people to say disgusting things. But that is the price of living in a in a free society. And so I think certainly in Europe, a lot of the very far-reaching uh, hate speech laws now where people are put in jail for saying things we might find offensive, but I probably find offensive, um, you know, might be put in jail according to new laws now passed in some European countries for misgendering somebody, something I would not do personally. Uh, I don't see any reason to do that, but nor do I think that it's appropriate for the state to lock you up uh, because you have done that. I think there, there's a real need for action on the legal sphere. Beyond that, we've seen, for example, in the United Kingdom, uh, banks cancel the bank accounts of thousands of customers because they disagreed with their political speech. That, again, I think, is giving the tools of real tyranny in the hands of private corporations. I think we need laws that prohibit uh, key companies like that from severing the business relationships of their customers on political grounds. Perhaps a lot of these people uh, were on the right or were racist. The next day, it might be people who are insufficiently patriotic, who have the bank accounts canceled. I think in a free society, your ability to uh, have financial relationships with key providers that you need in order to lead a life, your ability to, to travel on a train or on a plane, your ability to participate in the basic categories of social life should not depend on uh, the views you express, no matter what our judgment about those views. And then finally, I think this is something where we collectively have to stand up for a culture of free speech in our social environments. Uh, healthy form and robust forms of criticism are perfectly fine. I uh, used to be more active on Twitter than I am now. I often encountered very robust views. Uh, that does not mean that I was canceled. There is a subtle but important difference between a, a healthy critical culture and the hallmarks of uh, what can be called cancel culture. And uh, Jonathan Rauch, a very interesting, sophisticated American journalist and think tanker, has a nice list of some of the kind of attributes we should look out for that indicate that we've crossed that line. So one of them is what he calls punitiveness. Um, attempts at cancellation often involve severe punishments like uh, uh, revoking titles or honors or being fired from a job. Another is deplatforming. Um, so cancellations often involve demands to deplatform offending individuals so that they cease to be able to express their views. Um, uh, organization. So these often involve collective efforts to punish offending speakers who coordinate petitions on social or social media campaigns. And finally, secondary boycotts. So these attempts at cancellation often seek to exert pressure on any institutional publication with which the person who's being criticized is affiliated, aiming to render the person radioactive. When you see members of your social circle engage in these kind of tactics, when you're asked to participate in that kind of social circle, in that kind of social uh, tactic, think very hard about whether it really is justified. Even if you dislike strongly the views of a person that they are aiming at, is that going to help to improve your culture or is it actually going to be one little step towards the establishment of uh, a form of social control where people start to be very afraid to you know, express uh, their opinion and express dissent from prevailing views? Now, the identity trap tells a story uh, it develops a critique, and you also articulate a liberal position, a philosophical liberal and also a political a liberal position. That's, I think, quite an important uh, duality uh, in the book, if you wish. Uh, and so I wanted to ask you as a kind of closing question, how do you see the prospects of the identity synthesis and of liberalism in the US and also more globally? Would you perhaps say that the contest between these two positions is actually shaping up to be the defining battle of ideas, if you wish, in our own time? I think so, at least one of the defining ideas. I mean, clearly one of the defining battles is between uh, right-wing populism and liberal democracy, um, or more broadly between dictatorship and liberal democracy. When we look at the war in, in Ukraine and uh, the attempts by Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping to impose their vision of things on the world, 
Uh, that is clearly one of the fundamental political conflicts in, in, in the next decades. It, in a way, is not the defining intellectual conflict, because certainly in my universities, there aren't many defenders of uh, uh, Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping, and no other particularly many defenders of, of Donald Trump or Viktor Orban. And so I think in the political sphere, the defining battle will be against authoritarianism and right-wing populism. In the intellectual sphere, I do think that there is going to be uh, this fundamental contestation between these ideas, kind of in a parallel way to which uh, one of the defining you know, intellectual conflicts from, from, let's say, 1950 to 1980, and before and after as well, in, in many Western universities was between Marxism and liberalism, right? There is going to be a very significant ongoing fight over the intellectual allegiance of the public sphere, and that is going to have consequences for the rules and norms by which our institutions live. And so I'm glad that this fight is slowly coming out into the open. Um, you know, for a while, and, and part of the part of this is the sort of lack of name we have for this ideology, right? You can call it wokeness, but that sort of sounds like an old man shouting in the clouds. You can call it identity politics, which is far too broad and imprecise. That's why I'm trying to say uh, perhaps we can use identity synthesis or some other term. I don't really care, but we need a neutral term that actually allows us to name the ideology and have real conversations about it because it is a rich body of ideas that has transformed the world and we need to be able to grapple with it. Um, so I do think that that has come into its own, but because it doesn't have a name, because it sort of flew under the radar, and then because suddenly criticizing it was was sort of regarded, you know, quite ill in many circles, it's been a very strange shape of 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 how we've of how it's gained an influence and how we've grappled with it as 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 academics and as intellectuals. And so I think mean, now the fight is slowly coming out into the open. And uh, we will, I think, be debating it for a good number of decades. Um, and so, yes, I do think it is going to be the defining, or at least one of the defining intellectual fights of, of the coming decades. Uh, I think in the end, I am optimistic that uh, liberals and others will, will win this fight because the vision of the identity synthesis is too pessimistic. It does have many contradictions, which become really evident where it wins any form of political power or institutional power, because most people don't define themselves in the most fundamental way by the specific intersection of their identities. They they have pride in their identities. They give some amount of importance to their identities, but they think of themselves as individuals who transcend whatever that sum of identities would tell or say about them. Because many different political and moral and religious traditions have reasons, each of their own, to be skeptical about an ideology which says that you're fundamentally defined by the group into which you're born. And because liberalism, for all of its travails, remains a very appealing and successful ideology, one that has allowed a lot of countries in the world to be relatively peaceful and affluent and tolerant, and one that remains part of a moral repertoire of many citizens who, who may not be able to formulate what liberalism is and may not even realize that they're liberals, but who are concerned and worried and sometimes disgusted when the basic precepts of liberalism are violated in the institutions of which they are part. And, and what I want to make a contribution to in this book is to uh, allow the opponents of the identity trap to regain the moral high ground. I've noticed in many conversations that people who want to criticize this ideology uh, see the moral high ground before they even start to speak because they uh, either are so apologetic that they disagree with somebody who is seemingly more progressive than them that they sort of sound guilty by the time they open their, their, their mouth, or they're so sure that the criticism is going to be ill-received that, you know, like the uh, little kid that is worried about failing the test and therefore doesn't even try to do well on it for fear of what it might show if he did, sort of play the role of a jerk from the beginning, right? Say, wow, here's my bop, you know, you're going to hate me anyway. Um, but but I am, you know, deeply convinced of the ideas that I argue for in this book. I'm proud of those ideals. I think they've done a lot of good for the world. I might be wrong in certain aspects, as we all might be wrong, and we have to stay open to conversation and to contestation. 
Um, but I see no reason to be ashamed of what I'm saying. I'm arguing for ideas that I hope and believe will make the world a better place. Um, and that should allow me to go into a conversation and a debate with people who have different views in, in, in a proud and self-confident manner. And so I hope that the book will help people do that by explaining where these ideas come from, what the nature of them are, by really taking them through critiques of you know popular buzzwords from cultural appropriation uh, to certain forms of uh, equity, and by making an affirmative case for why we should hold on to liberalism. Uh, thank you so much for that substantial and nuanced uh, closing answer. And thank you so much for the entire conversation today, Yasha. Thank you. It was, it was a real pleasure. The pleasure has been all mine. I have been discussing with Yasha Mung today, whose new book, The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time, is out this September. I hope you have enjoyed our conversation about it. Until the next conversation here at the Review of Democracy.